Well, uh, we've been working through this uh, mini-series, I guess, just preparing uh, for us to get towards Christmas. We've got one more in the series of God Rocks through next week, this week and next week. And uh, we're going to be looking this afternoon, and in fact, what we have been looking at up to now, uh, and we're continuing this afternoon, is that when we truly, when we really are confronted by uh, the God of the Bible in Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That sounds a bit of a strange combination, doesn't it? So let me go through that for those who might not be clear on what that means. It means this, that the God of the Bible is the one true God who is described in the pages of the Bible. And as we see that, that God opened up to us, we see a God who is invisible to this world. He is the creator of this world, uh, he is the one who is intervening continually in this world, but he is at the same time awesome and out of this world. But that God does not remain out of this world, but in his trinity form, he comes to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, his son. So he becomes present with us in his son. 2,000 years ago, one man in history who has died, risen, come back to life, having died, uh, and then not died again. That's the key thing about Jesus. There are others who did die, having been raised back to life. Jesus rose them, uh, brought them back to life, or the power of God brought certain people back to life. But they died again. Jesus is unique, and he's the one man who has come back to life and then returned in risen form to heaven. And so we see God, but then that was 2,000 years ago, wasn't it? That was 2,000 years ago. What does that mean for us? Well, we see God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you see the picture that God is describing for us of his, himself? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in such a way that every single person in the history of this world has the potential to be engaged with by the power of God. Because the Holy Spirit continues now to engage with us. It's, it's as though, and this is the way the book of Acts is written, it's as though Jesus himself continues to work in this world. And he does that by his ongoing presence by the Spirit. And so we see that when we are confronted, when we come into contact with that living God, it is not a little thing, is it? It can't possibly be a little thing. Uh, and so when we do, when it's not just a, a passing observation, but a real encounter, he, he rocks our world. And I guess that that might be something that we need to uh, describe as well. He destabilizes us. He makes us unstable in some way. Every one of us. We have to be destabilized. We have to be rocked because we feel as if we have a stability, a foundation, anchors in place in this world in certain ways. And so it is essential. It is a mark of a true encounter with the God of the Bible that he will rock us. He will shake us. He will destabilize us. He will remove the anchors that we think we have fixed firm so that we realize that they are not fixed firm uh, and then we rely on him rather than rely on the things that we think are going to give us security. 
And so God rocks us. And we can see that in the real issues of life. And that's what we've been looking at over these past few weeks. Last week we looked at the issue that God rocks our relationships. And we think they're so secure or we think they should be certain things. And we realize that there is so much more in Jesus. The one that we're looking at this afternoon is the issue of money or finance. What happens when God rocks our finances, our money? Her name was Hugette Clark and she died earlier this year at 104 in New York City. She was the daughter of one of the contemporaries of Rockefeller and Carnegie. Her father was reckoned to be the second richest man possibly running alongside Rockefeller. Uh, He was one of the copper kings. He'd made an absolute fortune uh, in copper mining. She died earlier this year leaving a fortune of $500 million, which, given that she was 104, And her father, who she received the money from so many years earlier, it's not bad going, is it? However, she'd lived her life since she was around about 30 uh, in pretty much recluse. For the last 20 years of her life, she had paid to live in an isolated room in a New York hospital with her collection of Uh, antique dolls she still owned two properties outside of the city one of which is now on the market for 26 million dollars and she also owned the whole of the 8th floor of of the biggest uh, apartment block overlooking Central Park on 5th Avenue she reputedly owned the biggest apartment in New York City And never went in it. She lived her life with all of that. And yet she lived without any contact and without any hope. I look at that and I think, you know what? What a tragic story for one in all sorts of ways. But... Don't you think she's got something to say to us? I think in a way that story tells us something, doesn't it? Something that pretty much all of us here will never, never experience. That even if you get to the point of the absolute security of money, it really doesn't work. I guess she'd found that in some way. Maybe at some point in life her hopes had been shattered. Uh, And she just ended up living as a recluse. But at the same time, doesn't it tell us that, doesn't it give us little kind of indicators, little hints uh, of the way we live in this world and the way so many people live? We live where, if you like, money or, or possessions or the things that money buys becomes our our hope. I think we do that in three ways. Money becomes our security. It becomes our security. We feel secure if we have it. We feel insecure if we don't have it. It also gives us a sense of identity. 
It, it makes us, um, we reach a certain point of acceptability within our peer group if we are able to keep up with, in certain ways, certain activities. And that happens on all sorts of different levels, doesn't it? It happens at, at the kind of level of the things that we're able to buy to wear. It happens at the level of the things that we're able to do to, to entertain ourselves. It gives us an identity with those around us. Security, identity. And it gives us what we believe, but I get what Miss Clark realised it didn't do, is we think it is going to give us happiness. Three things. Which we believe and we continue to believe. And, and really the whole of our world is in some way shaped pretty much around this idea that money and possessions are going to do those three things. And you might say, well, I am not affected by that because I haven't got money. <laughs> and, uh, and I would say, well, there are some people who are free of this. And you, you might be one of those really rare exceptions who are truly free from the, the kind of grip of, of a sense of the power and, and the, the, the power of money. But I think it's pretty unusual in the Western world that anybody could be that. But you might be. But it is not just the having that is an identity of money as a crisis, is it? We can just as much be in the thrall of money when we haven't got it. Because we believe it is going to deliver all of those things that we don't have. Maybe we don't have security and therefore we look and we think if we had possessions, if we had money, it would deliver us. It would bring us that security that I don't have. Uh, we don't have identity but we think if I only had the money I would be able to gain some identity. If I only had money I would be happy. It's the one thing, if it would just give me that bit of peace, that bit of release, that bit of freedom, if I just had the money to take the pressure off, and then I would be happy. The Bible speaks again and again and again about money. It says that money is the, uh, the root of evils. What does it mean? Does it mean that you know, money itself is... No, not at all. It means that it is the identity of where our hearts, it's the kind of the channel for where our hearts can get to. It's the, the, the litmus test, it's the way that, just, that really takes the lid off who we are as people. It just shows us who we are. It's the thing which so quickly gives us an indication of what we are really like. So I want to ask the question this afternoon... What happens when God rocks our world in the area of money? And we're going to look at it through this really quite well-known story. Many of you will know this story, and some of you will, won't. Jesus is traveling around, and uh, he enters a place called Jericho. If you imagine the map of, uh, of uh, the Middle East, around the, the area of Jerusalem, if you pretty much travelled east, you would get to Jericho. We talked about um, the, the story that Jesus told about the, the good Samaritan. He was travelling on the road to Jericho. He's just travelling east from Jerusalem. That's the journey. That's where it is. Jesus was there. 
And as he's walking through that place, in verse 2, we get this little picture. A man was there, the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. In that little sentence, in just a few words, uh, Luke gives us um, a pen portrait of a man. Now, for us, it's hard for us to see that because we don't, uh, we don't know the history uh, of the ancient world uh, as though we would be a first reader of this. But if you were a first reader of this account of Luke, that little sentence would just fill you with a whole picture. Here's a man who is, for a start, he's socially rejected. Does that look like social rejection in that sentence? Probably not, but he is, because he's a tax collector. The land was under Roman occupancy, uh, and the tax collectors were appointed by the Roman nation to gather taxes on behalf of the empire. You know the kind of stories that went on, the, 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 the response particularly of, uh, of the French towards those who collaborated with the, with the Nazis during the Second World War. They were hated, they were despised. Uh, the tax collectors of the ancient world, uh, ancient uh, Judah, would have been just the same. They would have been considered on the same scale. He would have been a social reject. He would have been, if you like, in bed with the enemy. That's the kind of attitude that people would have had. But it's ratcheted up. Because this man isn't just one of the tax collectors. He is the chief of the tax collectors. He's the one where all of the hatred would be directed. Because he's got an army of people who are working the system. And it works like this. I come up to you, I'm a tax collector, and I have a requirement from my boss, which is to get from you uh, a certain amount of tax. Let's say £100 worth of tax. I come to you and I say, you owe £125 worth of tax. Okay, we'll negotiate. I'll take 120 and if I don't get the 120, well, you won't like me when I'm angry. doesn't have quite the same effect when I say it, does it? <laughs> but that's the kind of thing. £20 goes in my back pocket, £100 goes to my boss. And he gives £50 to the Romans. Because that's all that was needed in the first place. See the way the system works? You see the way the chief of the tax collectors, when you multiply that up by many tax collectors, becomes incredibly wealthy. Now, at the same time, and you can see it even in this world uh, today, here is a man who has made life choices, hasn't he? He's made life choices. He has decided at some point he's been faced with a decision. I, should I do this? Should I take this role? And he's made a decision in life to sacrifice certain things, social connections, family connections, relationships. He's decided to sacrifice those for the sake of money. That is the decision that he has made. And you think, well, people don't do that now. Of course they do. 
Of course they do. People do that time and time and time again. They do it in the nicest of ways, by sacrificing relationship to committing time to their careers in a way which destroys relationships within the family. They stay, we have made decisions where we sacrifice certain things, certain relationships, because our objective is finance. There are other things which, which sadly so often happen after the loss of a loved one, where it shows that relationships are sacrificed when, when issues of finance and issues of will start to emerge, and suddenly, where there has been relationship before, that is sacrificed on the altar of money. Do we see that happening? Of course we do. And so the, we see, in a sense, the same decisions that Zacchaeus had made being lived out today. He has made decisions of sacrificing certain aspects of his identity for the sake of something else. Now, you know as well as I do that having reached the point of being wealthy, he will have felt as though that will have been filled up. He will have surrounded himself with a great life with all sorts of other people who have made exactly the same sacrifices. He will have lived his life justifying the decisions that he's made, accepting that he, well, after all, we're under Roman law. I haven't done anything illegal because, after all, the Romans know that this is going on. It's perfectly acceptable. Uh, and so he is now surrounded by people who will reinforce the decisions that he's made. Doesn't that happen again today? Don't we live in exactly the same decisions? Don't people surround themselves? Don't we surround ourselves? Don't we surround ourselves with people who've made the same decisions as we've made when it comes to money? And we say, I I'll justify this, this decision. I'll surround myself with other people who've made the, right the same decisions as I've made. And we will consider them to be right. Now when we go down this line, it sounds like we're saying money is just a bad thing. The Bible never says that. The Bible just never says that. The Bible always says that we are to work. The Bible always says that we have a commitment of responsibility to care and to provide. The Bible always says that we are to be wise with our money. We are not to be those who, who are just kind of lazy slobs who don't do anything and just don't work and don't care. And We are to be diligent. We are to be committed. We are to be all of that. But the tipping point comes, as it has for Zacchaeus, where this has become what? It's become my security. It's become my identity. It has become my happiness. That's where he is. This is his security. Hey, nothing can touch me now. The system can't touch me anymore. I'm bulletproof. You know, it doesn't matter now what happens. I I'm safe. And after all, I'm surrounded by other people who've done the same thing. And we all wear the same clothes. And we all go out to the same uh, places to eat and we all go on holiday to the same place uh, and so we have a sense of identity and aren't we having a great time but I think as we see this story unfold that there's something else going on in this man's life maybe something a little bit like Miss Clark in New York over the past hundred and hundred years Jesus comes along Jesus comes along 
and there is a little chink in the armour that emerges. Jesus, as we see here, is creating an incredible stir. Everywhere that he went, he was surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of people. This guy is a little guy, and he can't see because of the crowd, so he does the most bizarre thing. And I think that that's important to see. How often would you see the richest man in town climbing into a tree? I mean, often? Is is he a kind of an open tree climber? This is my, you know, you go free running, I do tree climbing. No, of course not. He is doing the most bizarre thing. He's just doing a really strange thing, climbing into a tree to see a man. So often, the things that we do reveal what's going on inside, don't they? strange things that we do. The things that suddenly... You know, he's just... Jesus is there, he's walking through town, and uh, he's surrounded by people, and there is a spontaneous response, which I think is a little window. We've got the window into his life in the verse 2, where it says the kind of man that he is, and we have a window into his heart by the action that he carries out. We see a man... Where for all of the front, there's something going on inside which says it ain't good enough. I'm going to do the most strange thing. I'm going to run on ahead. I'm going to climb into a tree. I just want to see this man. There is something about that, isn't there? In two ways. Firstly, Jesus continues to have the same impact in this world as he did then. In fact, actually, I would say in a greater way. Because of the the way that we can communicate today, the impact of Jesus on a global basis is continuing to have multitudes of people interested in him. Interested in him. Following him, finding out what is going on. He died 2,000 years ago, and yet he still remains a culturally incredibly important person. He is the centre of documentaries, he is the centre of artwork, he is the centre of films, he is the centre of novels, he is the butt of jokes. He continues to be culturally a sensitive person that everybody wants to observe. And here we see Jesus like that in this particular moment in time in a way that we continue to see. But we also see a man who is saying, actually... (laughs) All of this money isn't giving me security. I I won't admit it to anybody, but my actions open up my heart. It isn't giving me identity. I won't admit it to everybody, but my actions tell the reality. And I think mostly we would say it isn't giving me happiness. Because after all, why would the richest man in town climb a tree if he was absolutely satisfied? Why would he effectively prioritize another person over himself? A peasant preacher, after all. 
because I think he knew that there was something that was missing. The most extraordinary thing happens next, extraordinary in two ways. Extraordinary that in the midst of all of that crowd, Jesus stops and he looks up into the tree and he tells Zacchaeus, come down because I'm going to spend the day with you in your home. That's extraordinary. I think it's extraordinary for at least this reason. Because Jesus, in the midst of the multitude, is interested in the individual. I have had so many conversations with people who have come to terms with the fact that in a gathering like this, in a gathering of people, there is a sense in which they know, there is a consciousness that they know that God is speaking to them individually and personally. I think that that is an experience of many people. And that is what we see here worked out. That in the midst of a huge gathering of people, God is interested in the individual. He's interested in Zacchaeus at that moment in time. And he's interested in a way which is uh, socially very important because he says, I want to spend time with you in your home. I want to come in. I want to eat with you. I want to display friendship and relationship with you. That really kicks off the crowd. Because the crowd cannot understand this. Jesus is the religious elite in their minds. He is a great teacher. We're on a par with him. You know, we're religious people as well. And he's going to go and spend time with this horrible, sinful man. This this person who despises our nation. This scum of the earth. He's not just going to go and speak to him from the tree and condemn him. He's going to go and make friends with him. Do you ever feel as though there is something in you which bars you from relationship with Jesus? Do you ever feel that? Do you feel as though there is something which it's okay for everybody else, but if you knew me, there would be a great big barrier to any possibility Of relationship with Jesus. This event says that isn't the way it works with Jesus. He has time for the people who are rejected in society. He has the time for the outcasts. In fact he has time for those who know that they are wrong. Look at the way it works out. Jesus goes and he spends time with him. He came down gladly and welcomed him into his house. The people mutter. But Jesus, uh, sorry, Zacchaeus' response in verse 8 we see is very interesting. I guess this is probably at the end of the day. It would seem as though this is probably at the end of the day. They've spent a day together. Zacchaeus stood up. I guess that that would imply standing up. At the end of the meal. I don't think you stand up out of a tree. I don't think you do. But the way I read it. That's the end of the day. The end of the meal. He stands up at the end of the meal. They've spent time together. And he makes this declaration. Look Lord. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything. I will pay back four times the amount. 
That's really significant. What he actually does is he places himself in terms of the law of God's people as one of the worst culprits. In legal terms, he says, I will pay back four times. There were scales of payback in the Old Testament. And he says, I will pay back on the scale of four times. The most severe. The extortioners, the racketeers, paid back at that level. And he said, I'll pay back at that level. What we see is a response to what has actually gone on inside. You know, we talked earlier about security, identity, happiness. Three aspects that Zacchaeus was desperately looking for. And every one of us are looking for that, aren't they? Aren't we? Let, let's face it. Every one of us are looking for that. We all want security. We all want to know who we are. We all want identity within a peer group, within our relationships, and we all want happiness. And we say, I'm at the center. I'm worshipping me, and the God of money is going to pay me back by providing all of those for me. I'm on the throne but the God I worship is money because I know it will deliver for me. And Zacchaeus has reached this moment in his life where he has said, by saying this, I am effectively saying I'm the worst of sinners. I'm guilty. I stand before this man who has come into my home as my friend and I have realized that I am the guilty one. I stand condemned. My response is to pay as a, as a guilty person. And I will give away to the poor. So there are two things going on. He's saying I'm guilty. But I want to go and I want to serve other people. This is what has happened to Zacchaeus. And this is what happens when God rocks our finances. It works like this. I am no longer worshipping me. I am worshipping the God who has made me. And when I let go of me, when I let go of me at the, on the throne at the centre, three amazing things happen. I find my security outside of me. Why do we want money so desperately? Because we think it's going to make us secure. And then Jesus rocks our world and he says, security in money? You get Clark, security on money, in money? Did she find it? Forget it. There's no security in money, but there is absolute security in me. Absolute security in me. Identity. Does it really matter what other people think of you? Does it really matter to me? I am, you know, I am fighting this battle like everybody else. I am fighting the battle of, of an identity crisis. I want my identity for me. I want my identity in the eyes of all of you people and in the eyes of people around me. And Jesus says, when you come into relationship with me, that goes. You find your identity in me. 
And I, and I share what Paul says in Romans. I am continually fighting this battle. Are you fighting that battle? That battle of who I know I want to be. And yet this old nature that's continually saying, you've got to look right. You've got to be right in your peers. And Jesus says, when you come into relationship with me, I become your identity. And when I become your security, when I become your identity, that is the greatest happiness that you can ever have. And then, when that happens, our fingers, which are holding on so desperately to money, get peeled away. Little by little. It's not like we suddenly drop it Now, I reckon that Zacchaeus carried on fighting this battle for the rest of his life. It wasn't just an instant, but this is a response of the heart. But the fingers get peeled away so that we realize that we are able to let go of the things that meant so much to us. But this is the key. Zacchaeus was a slave to money. He was a slave. It was, he was absolutely in its power because that's what false gods will do to us. They will grab a hold of us. They will demand that we serve them. They will force us to serve them and then they will fail to deliver security, identity and happiness. They'll fail to deliver those things and they will carry on saying, serve me some more, serve me some more, serve me some more. Was it Rockefeller who said, contemporary of Clark's father, how much is just enough money? Is enough money just a little bit more? You know, it's like that, isn't it? It gets you. And it says, serve me, serve me. And then we suddenly realize we're a slave to it. And then when we, by righteousness, God's goodness... When we become slaves of Jesus, we get freed. So that we become the masters of money. So that suddenly money is no longer our master, we become the master of it. We can do what we want with it. We can let go of it. We can give it away. We can put it to good use. We can do all of the things that we should do with it. That we ought to do with it. Because we are stewards of what God has given us. We can, we can master it. Rather than it mastering us. Why? Because we have found a saviour. Outside of the things in this world. Isn't it interesting that we found a saviour who does give. And give. And give. And give. We expect money to deliver for us and we can't. It can't. But Jesus does. He gives and gives and gives and gives. So that we are freed. So that we are released. So that we are empowered to become, for the first time, truly masters of money. Rather than slaves of money. What a tragic waste of resource. You get Clark, $500 million. 
$500 million doing nothing. Doing nothing. If we are able to master the money that we have responsibility for, are we not able to ask the question, for the glory of Jesus, what can this be put to use for? Because you know what? My fingers no longer need to hold on to it the way they once did.